0: Hey, it's Dan Diamond, and you're listening to a special episode of Politico Pulse Check recorded live in Aspen, Colorado on Thursday night. I was joined by Andy Slavitt, the ex Obama official, and Cindy Gillespie, the Arkansas health chief, to talk about immigration, Medicaid, the looming election, and a lot more. It's going to sound a little different from our normal episodes because of the live studio audience. But we wanted to bring you this episode because it's so timely. And we did have a regular edition of Pulse Check this week, too. Check your podcast player. You'll see the interview with John Carreyrou, the Wall Street Journal investigative reporter who broke the Theranos story. He was on to discuss his reporting methods, what happens next with Elizabeth Holmes, and where the fraud happened at that company. If you like Pulse Check, you can help us. You can rate this on your favorite podcast app. Share us with a friend or just send us an email with suggestions. I'm at ddiamond at politico.com. And check out our library of episodes, too. I have a feeling that the interview with Atul Gawande a few months ago, where he talked about his career, his aspirations, how he approaches healthcare reform, will be that much more newsy and relevant, given that Atul was just tapped to work with Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, and Jamie Dimon on a company that will work to reinvent healthcare for those companies and maybe the whole U.S. healthcare system. Okay, let's get to the conversation with Andy and Cindy. I'm Dan Diamond, and this is Politico Pulse Check, coming to you live from Spotlight Health in Aspen, Colorado. On today's show, we're going to talk about the political battles in healthcare from immigration to Medicaid, and what is looming in this midterm election year. We'll also hear about how two healthcare leaders built their careers and what they see next for our system. So let's welcome our two guests. First, Cindy Gillespie, who leads the Arkansas Department of Human Services, who worked on two different Olympics, was a top advisor to Mitt Romney. Cindy, welcome to Politico Pulse Check.
1: Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: And our other guest in the other corner, Andy Slavitt, the former administrator for CMS. He's now doing venture investments with Town Hall Ventures and chairing United States of Care, the new organization committed to universal access of care. I should say welcome back to Andy Slavitt to the podcast.
2: Thank you.
0: Saturday Night Live has the five-timers club, the ten-timers club. Andy is is our first and only uh, two-timer, three-timer, and four-timer on Politico Pulse Check, I think we should just bronze his microphone
3: at this point. You can't quit me, Dan.
0: <laughs> Why would I want to? So let's let's get started with the question that is, is gripping the nation. What is happening with the Trump administration and its approach to migrants on the southwest border? More than 2,300 children have been separated in the past two months. They have been placed into centers that fall under control of HHS. And some of these children are very young. There have been allegations that some are being forcibly drugged and physicians have loudly warned of the long-term, lifelong health effects. Cindy, Andy, your healthcare leaders from two different parties. When you look at the photos coming out from the border, what do you see?
1: Breaks your heart. I mean, I think that's the one first and, um, probably for me has been one of the more interesting components of the last few weeks as much as this country is divided everybody came together around one thing you don't take babies away from their families you don't separate children from their families And. This was not a partisan issue. Everyone came together around this, the Trump administration. I applaud them for changing course. And I think you see both sides rapidly going, now let's get the 2,300 children that have been separated back with their parents. And let's have a different policy going forward of keeping families together.
0: You're a Republican. You're applauding the Trump administration for changing. But you don't think the Trump administration should have had this policy in the first place?
1: I think people did not realize what was going to happen, uh, and when you began a policy that separated children, that's just not who we are as Americans.
3: Andy, yeah, I think the you know I served in government for a couple of years after serving in the private sector, and, and Cindy's had a, a career both in and out of private and public sector. I think the thing that you always have to keep in government at all times is is human empathy. It is very easy to just look at the big numbers of people and the big budgets and the political battles. But if you lose the human empathy, you lose your ability to have impact and you really lose your way. I think there's a lot that was risable about this policy. I, I do think that this is a calculated, was a calculated policy. Maybe Cindy and I differ a bit on this from the president and people in the administration. They reverse course after, I think, you know, trying every possible way of explaining this. But one area where Cindy's exactly right is right now, um, put policy aside, as we sit here today, we have 2,300 young children and parents in this country that need to be reunited. We should be focused on nothing else. That should be our number one priority. We should be bringing together the smartest people, the best people, the best resources, DNA testing, lawyers, immigration, digital capabilities, everything, and we should be every hour reuniting 10 more kids with their parents every single hour until it's done.
1: I think the other thing, if I could just chime in, the other thing is it emphasizes that we need a workable immigration policy in the country, and it's time actually for that to get resolved in Washington. However it gets resolved, it is time for there to be a workable immigration policy.
3: Someone needs to tell Congress that.
1: That's what I was just trying to do. To do,
3: do. <laughs> it's, been of, it's been a lot of years. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think many of us have a lot of reasons to believe that under ordinary circumstances this Congress is any more capable than any prior Congress in doing that. But I will say if the country could learn a teachable moment mm-hmm. from what's happened in the last several weeks and months and use that to affect – and to have people say, you know what? There are a lot of things we disagree over. But maybe, just maybe, we've had a unifying moment and we can make something of it. I would so strongly encourage Secretary Azar uh, and others who have the power to do something about this to take advantage of that. I- I'm not hopeful, but I really am encouraging of that.
0: Well, let's, let's talk about what Secretary Azar and HHS is doing. Congress aside, the administration has a lot of power here. The kids are in HHS centers, the photos that you see on TV. Those are our contractors for, for HHS, and yet the secretary has tried to distance his agency from this work. I want to make sure I'm getting this quote right. He said yesterday, quote, immigration policy isn't really what we at HHS do. Is Azar telling the truth?
3: Well, I, you know, I, I'd rather speak to how I think we would have handled things when, when we were in the administration, which is that the president expected us all to take accountability to make things right and to fix things. And I think that's typically the case. And I think Secretary Azar has that opportunity now. He has the opportunity now because these kids are under his jurisdiction. The Office of Refugee Resettlement is under HHS. He happens to have someone in the role that doesn't have a lot of experience with this. Which
0: which I and my colleagues reported on today. Scott Would Lloyd, reported on today? former abortion, uh, anti-abortion advocate. So you ran or helped run the healthcare.gov recovery effort How would you, Andy, if you were at Ikshik right now, what would you be doing to fix this problem?
3: This is going to sound a little bit rhetorical, but it's not. I wouldn't sleep until these kids were unified with their parents. And my colleagues wouldn't sleep. And there are lots of tools and mechanisms when you step back and think about them. And the good news is, as Cindy said, this is not controversial. I can't imagine that there's a person in their country That if Secretary Azar picked up the phone and said, "Cindy, Andy, Bill, John, Susie, if could you help me with this to get these kids together with their parents, who wouldn't pick up the phone and who wouldn't drop everything they were doing to help," and the secretary has an enormous moment at its hands to do that, and I think that's how this. If the story ends that way, it will be so much better for all of us.
0: Cindy, breaking news tonight right before the podcast, your boss, Governor Hutchinson in, in Arkansas, said that he does not want federal centers set up with migrant kids. HHS has been shopping around for potentially as many as 80,000 migrant children around the country, but Arkansas said no. Why, what what was the calculus there?
1: The focus on uh, keeping children with families. Um, we recognize that there, that there have to be places for people who are coming across the border illegally and that have to be detained but his focus was on keeping families together not having children um, alone in Arkansas at centers and the federal government there trying to take care of them. So that was his focus. Um, he. Believes we, I'm not trying to speak for him, but he does believe that we do need to strengthen our immigration policies in this country and that we need to do more. But separating families, he's always been very focused on keeping families together across everything we do. Uh, not trying to change your subject, but even with the work we've been doing in the state, um, one of the things I run is the child welfare system, right? So even in the child welfare system, one of his real areas of focus that he gave me when I came in the door was to try to make sure that as much as possible, when we had to take a child, the child went to a family, and that we focus on trying to put the child with a relative, if at all possible, so that the child remains part of the family structure. And that's been a big area of focus. So. His remarks and his position is very consistent with where he's always been.
0: It stems from those principles. Let's shift gears. Two weeks ago, the Trump administration said it would not defend the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act in court. They wanted the court to strike down the pre-existing condition protections. Andy, when that news came across the wire, you declared, quote, this was the biggest health care news of the year. Now. A lot has happened in the past two weeks. We just talked about the immigration firestorm. The Trump administration today proposed a reorganization of the federal government, including HHS. Do you still believe that this ACA legal machination—that that is the biggest healthcare news of 2018?
3: I think it's the biggest story of the year so far for two reasons in healthcare. Uh, the first is just quite a sad one—that um, the, politici- the politicization of the Justice Department, or quite frankly, any department, uh, to essentially go make a incredibly Rube Goldberg-esque argument that nobody on on either side, Republicans or Democrats, can objectively say makes much sense, uh, which clearly indicates uh, that 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 we have overtaken kind of the ability of career lawyers to do their job, and as a result, as you know, three career lawyers walked off the job. One of them. Quit. Yeah, quit, quit, quit! The, the other reason it's a big story is because you know you have to listen, particularly candidly, with this president to what he does, not what he says. And he has said in the past that he thought pre-existing condition protections were important, that he would protect them, that they were good—the one good thing of the ACA or something to that effect. And the fact that he's said, in effect, here that he wants to, as of January 1, 2019, remove pre-existing condition protections is an enormous place for them to be. And I think it is not inconsistent with a lot of the bills that were put forward over the last seven years and over the last year uh, to repeal the ACA. It's not inconsistent with the new association health plans that have come out. It's not inconsistent with a lot of the policy that the administration makes. So I think he has sent, uh, beyond a signal, he's now said very clearly that he doesn't think pre-existing condition protections are worth protecting but,
0: but let me just push you on this because he actually did not do anything right away the pre-existing protections are still there legal experts think this case is going to take years to adjudicate and probably won't succeed jonathan adler who tried to bring down the ACA in a legal battle a few years ago said this case is ridiculous so really is there any there there or are democrats seizing on this because it's an election
3: year. Well, look, the fact that he pushed it off to January 1, 2019 is an indication of additional cynicism, that he feels like this is illegal, but he wants to get through the election. So, yeah, there is, there is a real possibility. Let's not kid ourselves. We have a 5-4 Supreme Court that can change at any time over the next couple of years. We have a highly politicized Fifth Circuit. Um, this is very, very real. And importantly, we know that the intent of the administration is that by whatever means, at whatever time, whether through the judicial system, the administrative processes or the legislative system, they want to get rid of these pre existing condition protections.
1: I think it's also though, you've got to recognize one of the things that also did all the Republicans now are coming forward as part of this election cycle and saying they are for pre, uh, for protecting pre existing conditions. So it has not led to, if the Democrats believe that this is going to lead to um, a clear divide on this issue in the election, I don't think you're going to see it. Because you're seeing again and again more of them now coming out and saying, I always said I wanted to protect pre-existing conditions. I still want to protect pre-existing I never conditions.
3: Raised, I never raised election year politics here, Cindy. I did not. I, but that's fu- the title of what we're talking about. But I'm fundamentally, <laughs> so. but I'm fun. You know, you're fine to raise it. Yep. But my point was not, my point was not that. I am quite sure that Republicans who, who can do polling worth their salt. Many of them will say, no, we don't want to do this. Ted Cruz did not. Ted Cruz said that this was a good idea, uh, and I think there are many Republicans who think this is a good idea. But they've done polling, and they they want to try to. They think this is a bad issue for them in in, in the midterms, so. But, but I'm much more focused on the fact that we've got 130 million people, including many of whom we know and we have served over the years, that could lose an important protection. That's far more important to me in this context.
0: We, we do have a Republican on stage. Cindy, do you believe in the Trump administration lawsuit? Is this a good argument?
1: I'm not a lawyer. And I'm not trying to be cute saying that. But I am not going to try to weigh in on what they've done legally or not done legally in choosing not to go defend the lawsuit.
0: Though this could affect thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of Arkansas I tend to agree with
1: you that this is not going to be anything that's going to happen anytime soon, and everything I read legally matches up with what you said, which is it's going to be a non-issue, but again, not being a lawyer, I don't want to give you a legal explanation of it.
0: I, sh- I should clarify that, as moderator and reporter, I don't necessarily believe the positions that I am saying. I'm just supposed to be asking
3: <laughs> I have to play devil's advocate no matter who i talk to and to be and to be fair to cindy, it's hard to be put in a position where you have to publicly disagree with some, every single thing your party does just because your party does it so it's it's not, this is not this is not your decision uh this is this is something that, that that's happened and my my own view is. Most of this stuff we make political and healthcare at root is not. These are kitchen table issues. Totally. We either believe we should be, we either believe that we should allow people to care for their families when they get sick without having to worry about paying for it, without having to worry about whether they've been sick before, or we don't. And I believe it. And that's what it's about to me.
1: And I do agree It's a, that for most Americans it's a kitchen table issue. But what we always, what I always end up seeing is that kitchen table going two ways. One way is Americans feeling like it shouldn't be held against them because they've been sick, totally 100%. Um, and that is why I think, as you said, every poll that's run shows that people believe pre-existing conditions should be protected. Um, and now that it's out, that it exists, it's very hard to take something away from people. That's also a, a a whole different thing as well. But kitchen table issues work all kinds of ways. And one of the things you also see is um, people don't want... A lot of people are struggling financially, as you and I both know. And when they're struggling financially, there also becomes an issue of, I'm going to try to take care of myself. I'm going to do what I need to do for me. But the kitchen table gets kind of crowded when they feel like they're taking care of others and that is the other thing you see playing into a lot of the debate that goes on around what should health care look like in the future
3: I completely agree and look you know if this is a veiled conversation about what's good and bad about the ACA we should just stipulate that the ACA like every other major piece of legislation if it if it was highly successful it would have gotten about 70% right and it would count on history. It would count on Congress, the states, and the private sector to make it better. That didn't happen. What happened is Republicans said, we're not going to make it better. We're actually going to do things that make it more expensive for people. We're going to hurt the kitchen table. So if we, if we want to talk about that, we should be talking about bringing down prescription drug costs. We should be talking about reinsurance pools. We should talk about a lot of the practical things you've done in Arkansas. There are, we, we know that the states see practical solutions there. But that's not what we're, we're really talking about. What we're talking about is trying to use the ACA as a litmus test with the American public, and that has no value to me.
1: I don't think it's as much a litmus test this cycle. I could be wrong. But on the Republican side, um, it's just not shaping up as the same kind of a litmus test as it was two years ago, four years ago, I hope, six years I hope ago. You're right. I hope you're right. You know. I do
3: know this. Republicans have raised, what is it, probably nine figures of fundraising on defeating the ACA. It is still in the craw of the party. It is still in the craw of many in the fundraisers. It is still in the craw of heritage. Um, I don't think that that's an entirely healthy instinct. I do think a healthy instinct is debating how to make policies better for people. And both parties, no party has a monopoly on that.
1: And I think when you get into the states, that's what you start to see. Right? In the states, we are pragmatic, we are all focused on how do we keep moving things forward in our particular states. Um, well, let's, let's talk about
0: the states then. You run the Arkansas Health Program and Arkansas expanded Medicaid through the ACA very early for a state that was Republican-led or, or in kind of the purple, purple bucket. But Medicaid enrollment has gone down in Arkansas even even as it has gone up over I just looked at the statistics before coming here you and your 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 governor Hutchinson have talked about the decline in the uh, Arkansas works program mm-hmm. it has gone down I, I have the numbers here uh, since the beginning of 2017 it's shrunk by about 75,000 people or roughly 20% mm-hmm. why is shrinking that Medicaid program a good thing it
1: means the economy is improving. I mean, that's at the end of the day the biggest thing. I think in Arkansas right now, our unemployment rate's like 3.8%. Um, economy's improving. We still have um, a, a lower median income uh, than much of the rest of the country at 42,000, but the income is rising every year. Um, jobs are there. Medicaid should be shrinking. I mean, one of the things that cyclically happens is. Medicaid goes up when the, there's a recession, but it doesn't go back down usually, and it should, right? Um, it's about people not getting trapped um, in the cliff of what it costs to be able to move off of the social programs. So we view it as a really good thing, that, and it's a sign of uh, the economy improving.
0: So Arkansas expanded Medicaid through the ACA, and you've continued to tweak the program. Back in March, SEMA Verma, CMS Administrator, Andy's successor, hand-delivered the waiver to allow you to institute work requirements. And, and you were on a local news program. You said it was a great week for Arkansas. Now, but before I ask the next question, I just want to get a sense from the room. If you support the idea of work requirements in Medicaid, applaud. Okay. I like you. <laughs> Donald Trump Jr. At, at the back visiting Aspen. If, if you oppose... If you oppose work requirements in Medicaid, applaud. So, Cindy, to your point, if if Medicaid enrollment is shrinking because the economy is getting better, why do there also need to be work requirements that will end up limiting more people from accessing the program?
1: Happy to explain. Have you heard of this thing called social determinants of health?
0: It's it's everything outside of the hospital and doctor. Your eating, your job, your housing,
1: it, and it is a big factor in whether or not you're healthy, right? And one of the biggest factors in whether or not you're healthy is whether or not at ed, your education level, and whether or not you're employed, whether or not you are involved in your community. Um, one of the things we tried uh, right after I got there was to do work referrals, all right? So we're talking about um, our expansion population. Uh, We did work referrals. We have tons of services available in the state. Um, It is fascinating to me how many people that work in the health space do not know about the services available through other federal programs and agencies and state programs and agencies. I mean, TANF will not only pay for someone's education, they will provide support around every barrier they have, whether not, not it's child care, know what TANF is, right, so, uh, yeah. transitional systems for needy families, used to be called welfare long ago, got reworked. But a parent that qualifies, they'll even buy them a car if that's what's needed because there's no other transportation to help them through a several year cycle of moving up. All right, so we tried to refer folks to all these services that are available, make them aware. The take-up rate was abysmal, absolutely abysmal. So one of the things that we are doing with doing our work requirements is we are focused very heavily on a very small group to start with, but each state's doing it a different way. It's about
0: 70,000 people in your state.
1: Um, in our state, the entire population is about 200 78,000 in Arkansas works. This first year we're focused on about 90,000 which are 30 to 49 year olds. And within that group, we are only focused on those who are able-bodied adults, 30 to 49 years old, no children, no child in the home, not caring for an incapac- uh, an elderly or incapacitated person, no incapacitation of their own not in drug or alcohol, rehab, I mean there's a long list, not a student, etc. So it ends up being a very small group of individuals who we are putting in place the work requirement and with it doing an aggressive effort to get them over to all of these other services that are available to them. Uh, Could bore y'all to death about the Arkansas program, but it has a unique component to it we purchase for this population QHPs, Qualified Health Plans, which are offered uh, through the marketplace, uh, what used to be called exchanges. So we purchase Blue Cross Blue Shield or uh, Centene products for them, and or QualChoice, and those carriers are also in this with us. So just as the carriers do outreach around chronic disease, they're going to do outreach with us, with the individuals who have the work requirement to help try to get them over to the Department of Workforce Services or Career Education or whatever so we can help them begin to move up the income ladder.
0: Andy, you have not been a fan of work requirement programs. I can't imagine that what Cindy just said convinced you otherwise. Do you, do you see any common ground in what Arkansas is doing here? Or if you had your druthers, would there be no work requirement program at all?
3: Well, first of all, I, Cindy has a reputation of a very talented and compassionate public servant and everything she said, uh, there's nothing she said which leads me to believe she doesn't want to, the best for the people of the state of Arkansas. Having said that, I think this is a really misguided idea and will end up with many people in the cycle of losing their job, losing their health, losing their job, losing their health. I spent a year traveling around the country meeting with ordinary Americans. One young man came up to me in Ohio and said to me, uh, He was African American, he was in his 20s. He said, I work a fast food job. Every single person in my community gets their health care through Medicaid. None of our employers offer jobs. Your largest em- employer based in headquarters of your state doesn't offer many of its employees jobs. And when Is that Walmart you're talking Walmart, about? Walmart. Yeah. And when people's hours fall below 30 hours, or in some cases, uh, because just the vagaries of their work, through no fault of their own, they can lose eligibility. The other thing that happens is, no matter how many guardrails you put in place, say this young man who talked to me he loses his job, and say he gets depressed, that he can't work, and he can't get care. He doesn't qualify for disability. Three, two-thirds of people that we think about as being disabled don't meet the technical definition of qualifying for disability. So they are not excluded from these screens. And what happens is someone who loses their job, gets depressed, can't get the job again, can't get their health care services, it doesn't lead us in a good direction. And as a result, we see that the, the major consequence of all of these, in all these states, is budget savings and reduction of people that are insured. That is part of the intent. I'm not saying it's part of your intent. It's part of the intent in many of the states that are doing this, is to save money and put people back out of healthcare. This is not about work requirements. This is about isolating people that need help the most.
1: It's not about budget savings. We did our budget and we didn't take any savings for it. I mean, we're not, we're not, you know, in a perfect world, everyone will actually access these services and will go to work. We'll do some sort of community engagement. We'll do job search. A lot of things count in this. It's not a, um, The threshold is 20 hours a week, 80 hours a month, right? Of of income, of work, so that's the first thing. Second thing is, if you don't have that, community engagement counts, volunteering counts, job search counts, training counts, going to schools count. There's a whole lot of things that count. And if someone is suffering from depression, then when they go see their doctor, their doctor is going to be able to give them the exemption because they now have this short-term, hopefully short-term incapacitation. If it's a long-term incapacitation, they get a longer-term exemption. So they're, you know, whenever you pilot something, there'll be some little thing that goes wrong. But we are trying to design it, as you said, with the goal of helping the folks, not hurting the folks.
3: Look, You've made the decision you've made, and I think my, you know, my hope, and, and I'm sure you'll do this, is that you'll look at the actual effects. Okay. We can sit here on the stage and I can tell you this is what the data says, and this is what CBS says, and you can tell me this is what I think is gonna happen. But the reality is, you'll know. And my my sincere hope is that if there are lots of people falling through the safety net, you'll make adjustments. My greater hope, which you won't agree with of course, of course is that we do not link people's access to care with some task they have to complete, picking up trash on the street, volunteering in their community, deciding not to go to the ER, those things should be irrelevant to me. But we we don't have to agree on that, but what I do hope we agree on is that that when we see the impact on the citizens in the state, the residents in the state, that if people are falling through the safety net, and and we'll we'll see surprises, then we make adjustments.
1: We are gonna be studying this and Actually, following what's happening with regular reports monthly, it'll be out there for anybody to see. And it's not also remember the way everyone is setting up their work requirements is we're setting it up like in our case, we're aligning it with the uh, insurance year because, like I said, we're buying commercial insurance for folks so they can always, during open enrollment, come back in and get back in the program what? in the following year. But there's I don't know, it just started June 1st. We've got our first round going. Um, don't have data yet. Obviously, it's going to be several months before anybody would not have met the requirements. Um, but it's because it's three months of, of non-compliance. But I will tell you, we had, and this is just an anecdotal thing, but it was heartwarming for me, That in our first meeting after after it started, we got together with the Department of Workforce Services, and everybody was reporting in, and they were very very excited that they had had small, but they had had 16 people show up that first day at their workforce centers, who they had identified as not having a GED, and they were so excited because now they've started them on that path. We can do so. There may be some who lose care, but there will also be- Let me make
3: one more pitch for you Mm to you. Here this week is Governor Bullock from Montana. Governor Bullock from Montana and Montana, they expanded Medicaid. They implemented a highly successful, and it was just studied, work referral program. So it did many of the things you're doing, but it stopped short of saying that there is a step between you and getting access to a doctor. It stopped short of that principle. It was highly effective. It was just studied, and just in case it doesn't work out quite as well as you hope, you, there's a program you can adopt. You can still <laughs> say the word "work." You can still get more people to work. You can still get those 16 people to show up. I promise you. I've talked to Governor Bullock about this. It's highly successful, and it doesn't prevent people from getting care when they need it. You know, just people a different point. People also
1: do, as you know, get care when they need it. No, they do. not. It's no, def- they do being not. insured does no, not they do mean not. access to care.
3: No, but. But being insured, being uninsured definitely means no access to care. Not
1: no access to care. I mean, it, we, have a, we have an infrastructure. We have an emergency
3: that... room that will see people. But you and I both know what Americans need is a regular source of care, preventive care, the ability to catch breast cancer at stage one, not stage four in the emergency room when it's too late. That, doesn't, that does not happen. Go look, look at Louisiana. Look what happened when Louisiana expanded Medicaid. They, they moved up all of these women that were dying of cancer, dying of breast cancer, and they were preventing them at stage
1: one. They did a good job They did a great
3: job. That's what we need. We can't get that.
1: And we can have all of that, but we can also help people be able to get out of poverty. I mean, we've got to do both. We can't just do one. That's not a life, you know? And so- I guarantee
3: you if someone gets sick, they're not getting out of poverty.
1: And when someone gets sick, if they're on our program, they will be able to get keep the exemption. We're trying to keep them healthy, and that's what I'd really actually... Nobody wants to talk about what the real issues are. Yeah. I mean, the real issues, you know, like in Arkansas, the real issue isn't whether or not people have coverage. We now have yeah, 92% of our people covered. They still don't have access because we have huge areas where we don't have the medical professionals. And that is a problem all the southern states really experience. And so you can, have, in, yeah, you can have insurance. Yeah. It doesn't do any good if there's it's, no one to see or if there's a six-month wait. Yeah, let's that's what we problems. need to be focused on. Dan tried to get in. Okay.
0: Sorry. No, just riveting to hear you. We, we
1: came to an agreement. <laughs> <So>.
0: <laughs> if, if that's what you want to call it. Well, there's. <laughs> Medicaid is such a hot-button issue. Other ACA provisions have been rolled back, been targeted. Andy, you spent a lot of last year warning about sabotage in the ACA and criticizing HHS Secretary Tom Price, then-secretary. Have things changed at all under Secretary Azar? You were optimistic that they would.
3: I I don't actually think this is an issue that's being driven by Secretary Azar. I think this is an issue being driven by the White House and by Congress. I think they've taken a series of steps that have brought up the cost of health care. They have let in these non-compliant plans, which I think are not good, and Cindy may disagree. I think they're going to allow these loophole short-term plans. I think they have taken away this notion of personal responsibility, which the Republicans invented, in the form of, of, of an individual mandate. All of those things make health care more expensive. Let,
0: let, let me jump in. There's this litany of criticisms you have of the administration. Have they done anything on health care that you like?
3: Yeah, I think actually um, what uh, Scott Gottlieb has done in his agenda that he's driving uh, on drug costs, on cigarette smoking, the on FDA nicotine, the, the, the FDA commissioner, uh, on, on, on calling things out honestly has been fantastic. I mean, I, I look at things Scott Gottlieb's doing and I am envious and I wish that we had done them in our day. And I think that's how it should be. I mean, I think. I I so look forward to seeing things the administration does and saying, wow, that built on something we're doing. And uh, so we should all get over whether or not our pride of authorship. Just because whether the Obama administration did it, they may think it's good, they may think it's bad, but they should evaluate it on its merits, it shouldn't be automatically bad. And likewise, I should be open, and I try to be, to the things that they do that work and I think, you know, pointing Adam into CMMI. Adam Bowler. Adam Bowler. I think was a terrific, terrific move. I think to run the Innovation Center. Innovation Center. So, so there, there's, there's good opportunities.
1: I mm-hmm. think you also have to acknowledge that the work that D.C. is trying to do around opioids and the opioid crisis. I mean, that is something that for us in the states is very real. And um, it is a place where there are some great state examples, but it's also a place where – the infusion of help is badly needed, and so that's actually um, that's actually a place where we are all looking to Washington to, to give us some support. Um,
3: and we should keep issues. It's every issue we can keep away from being considered either a Democratic or Republican issue, and declare it safe space. We should do it. Opioids. Mm-hmm. I, we should do everything we can to prevent one side from demonizing the other. And so far we've been able to do that. I will tell you this story quickly. It was- Make a it few, a quick story, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we can do it another time. <laughs> but it, it was a few months before the election and a Republican Senator asked if I would go out and do a session with him. he was up for re-election in a tough race and talk about opioids with him. And and um, the political people said, you are gonna be doing him a huge favor. And I said, I don't care. We, we should go out and do this. We should protect as many things as we can from politics because this is people's health, I think. If we can do that with opioids, I'd be encouraged. I, I would say roundly, I worry that we are still not even in the early part of the first inning at, at being able to address the challenge in opioids. Accurate. We have massive amounts of treatment, uh, shortfalls. We have massive amounts of, of public health issues. There's, what is it, Did you see this? 80,000 opioid prescriptions a day in Utah, which is a state you know a lot about.
1: Yeah,
3: That's yeah. going to, on today, we are not, nearly where we need We're to be. We're
1: not anywhere near where we need to be, and it is just continuing to come.
0: I, I don't think I'm breaking any news to say that President Trump will sometimes be swayed by the last person he talked to. So um, imagine that you are, are in the Trump Tower elevator. You literally have the chance to give him an elevator pitch for one minute. What would you tell President Trump about care? What does he need to know that he doesn't know yet? Just one thing.
1: Okay, I'll go first. That healthcare is actually about more than just delivery, than just medicine, and more than insurance. That healthcare is actually about the health of the whole person. And that what we need out of Washington is for them to give us the flexibility in the states to be able to blend a lot of these social programs together so that we can actually address the health of the whole person. I'm hopeful the reorg may do that or at least allow an opening for a little of it. And, uh,
3: do you really think there would be a reorg?
1: I don't know. I, don't I, think I just saw it today.
3: I like to be a reorg. So. Um, but, but then again, it's
0: like the reorg is theoretical, just like the lawsuit or the, the change in the EC pre existing protections. That might be theoretical look,
3: too. Look, they, they have a budget out. The reason this question is a little difficult to answer uh, is you know, they just put out a budget in the house which got voted on and approved, which cuts up one point five trillion dollars from Medicare and Medicaid. So um, my my concern is that he that did he engage in the fact that these are things that are I don't believe consistent with anything he's said when he was when he's been running. And these are now actions that, that they're taking. We talked about pre existing conditions. We've talked about, um, to a certain extent, uh, drug costs. We've talked about immigration policy. We're talking about Medicare. We're talking about Medicaid. I happen to think he's wrong five out of five. So I don't know if I got enough time in the elevator. And I also don't think, I also don't think based on my experience, that, that um, he's, he is um, able to and willing to step in and, and um, set direction on, on this issue. By the way, the first thing I said to the, to the administration when I left is this is a losing political issue. We we lost on it. If you take it on, you will lose on it. it. The healthcare system is so complicated. Try to make incremental progress. Don't try to change the world. That was my original advice. If I were back then, I'd give him that same advice again. Obviously, I didn't take it.
0: Last question. Mm-hmm. Will healthcare be more or less partisan next year
3: and in five years? So what I think is that Americans, there, there's, a, there's a, a prime minister of a foreign country, I forget who, who said to me, we really admire your country, the one thing we don't understand and that we do differently than you, and this is a country with a very similar kind of spirit, adventurous spirit to ours, is that you seem to keep your citizens in a mild state of quiet desperation <laughs> around whether they're going to be able to afford the healthcare when they get sick. We don't do everything but we try to take that off the table for people so they can be productive and do things. We just we just try to at a baseline. They don't get everything but we try to make sure that that's not a worry. And I think what happened during the the year of repeal fights was that it was it was a primordial existential crisis for millions and millions of Americans who felt like their their ability to take care of their families was threatened. And so I think until that threat subsides. Until people feel safe and secure again, this is going to be a politically charged issue.
1: And I it's interesting. Um, first time I worked on a Republican campaign, I thought health care would be a big issue. And uh, I was told health care's not a Republican issue. They didn't, it wasn't part of what Republicans talked about in campaigns. After the Affordable Care Act, it became a big issue, right? Very polarizing. What you're seeing on the Republican side now is the shift back towards talking about taxes, talking about economy, not talking about health care. It's not showing up as much. It is a kitchen table issue, but it's much more of an issue that you see on the Democrat side, not on the Republican side. So I think we may be heading more back towards the way it used to be. With that said, on both sides, Medicare is just the holy grail that you don't touch. Medicare will always be a political issue if there's ever any fear about it. Medicaid is becoming an an interesting issue You know, the result of the Affordable Care Act is we now have 78 million people on Medicaid in the country. It's only, what, 58 million, I think, on Medicare? It's far larger. It grew enormously. So Medicaid is now a little bit more of an issue, particularly as you get in the states. I think the races this time are going to be very interesting to see how they come out because we have 36 governors' races. and the Republicans very much control the governorships. So with 36 races, 26 of them being Republican up, it is in the states that you get into those health care discussions, not as much as you do on the federal level. But those discussions go both ways. On the Republican side, it becomes about the cost of Medicaid to the states and to the state taxpayer. So it, it... We'll see if it's still as polarizing an issue, or if it begins to align around certain programs, particularly Medicare, as we continue to age.
0: And we will see if we come back and do this at Spotlight Health next year. What has transpired? Cindy Gillespie, Andy Slavitt, thank you for joining Politico Pulse Check. <laughs> So now we have time to take questions from the audience. There will be some runners with microphones. I will say, as moderator, if you're asking a question, it should be one sentence, and it should end in a question mark. So uh, I will point to folks. It looks like there's a question over here. And while the microphone, while the microphone is coming, I don't have to ask a question. Go right ahead, sir. I uh, listened to the New York Times Daily podcast on what it looks like on the ground for these children.
2: Do you think, in your view, that this was, in a in a way, a crime against humanity, and there should be more than a political price paid for those who inflicted this on these children?
0: Should there be criminal punishment for what has gone on in the border?
3: Let, 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 let me let me start. It's a it's a really um, Mind-bending and important question, uh, and I think um, I think all of us, as this uh, as this unfolded and as we learned about it, um, went through this sort of shock uh, and perspective on it. You know, I think right now the clock is ticking, and every minute the clock is ticking, and these kids aren't reunited with their parents. Um, is it, you, it is, is a matter of this getting worse and worse and worse. Um, you know, fundamentally, I'm not sure that I can tell you what the legal and criminal issues are going to be. I suspect that there are, and I know there are going to be uh, lawsuits uh, and people challenging what happened so that it never, ever happens again. There are already lawsuits. But we, ha- we, have to- we have to rise this to the moment where we learn so much from this that nothing like this is remotely possible again. That should be all of our objectives here.
0: There's another hand up right here in the back. Maybe not anymore. Yes, right there, if the microphone can go.
1: One of you is talking about the whole person. What are the changes that you would most likely to see in terms of prevention and wellness at the state level?
0: I think that was your issue, Cindy, the idea of social determinants.
1: Um, One of the things that I, and this is going to get very wonky, okay, but one of the things that is incredibly frustrating um, is the way we have to work with so many different programs, each with their own rules, and keep the funding separate. It flows from different federal agencies, you know, and we can't make an easy alignment around it. Um, for an individual who comes in and needs help, right? Somebody who is is, you know, is struggling, they come in, they shouldn't have to come in and go to multiple places, be assessed in multiple different programs in order to see if they qualify for each one. There should be an easier way for states, To, you know, basically bring the funding all together, harmonize in some way all the different rules around who's eligible, who's not eligible, and actually just work with the person. When somebody shows up and they are there and they need some help, be able to say, all right, these are the different programs. Let's figure out how we get you into them. I mean, we're all working towards improving that with IT systems that do more integrated eligibility, et cetera. But at the same time, there's a personal aspect of working with someone and being able to bring together all of those programs around them. Uh, right now, a lot of times we have to work, and this is this is okay. But there just aren't enough of these. There's a wonderful charity in Arkansas, Our House that actually can wrap around homeless women and they can figure it out for them. But the navigation of all of that is so incredibly difficult. So one of the things we all keep talking about in terms of state flexibility is not just flexibility around Medicaid, but flexibility to be able to bring the programs together and actually focus around the individual.
3: I completely agree. Uh, We have fragmented uh, our our care, the way we think about people. We made a mistake about 20 years ago when we ripped out mental health as a system from physical health. And that is a horrible mistake we need to recover from as an example. But it's also about one more thing. It's about invest. It's about money. We spend twice as much as the rest of the world on people's health care, but we spend half as much on poverty programs, primary care, mental health, nutrition. And, and other services that people need to keep them healthy. So we have to be able to reinvest. It's one of the reasons we have to control health care costs, and I think this is one of the points that Cindy and her colleagues have been making. If we don't invest in those things, we will never be able to keep well, them Well,
0: you're, you're now running this venture firm that's making investments in community health services and mental health. What, what is, you're,
3: you're pitching investors
0: to come in, what, what is the hit rate? How many, what percentage of pitches convert into someone being willing to invest in your firm?
3: It's a really easy story. We're investing in all the wrong things in healthcare. We're investing in the, I, I could probably buy 50 different Fitbits to count my steps. I, I didn't
0: hear a percentage though. Like how many people, when, they, when you pitch them, say I am on board with you?
3: Uh, the, the reality is Dan, I don't want to brag, but we're, it was not hard. It was not hard. Uh, to, it's to, your chance to, to, to brag in a
0: room of, of rich people at <laughs> to Aspen get, to, get, to invest in your <laughs> venture firm.
3: Look, we, we have to forget our fund. We're we're going to invest a hundred million pluses. We need to shift probably about four to five billion dollars of investment away from things like Fitbits and toys for healthy, quite frankly, you know, commercial white populations, and invest in populations where they have ordinary healthcare conditions and awful health outcomes because we don't have the mental health infrastructure, the the recovery infrastructure, we don't have uh, investments in all of the kinds of things uh, that we're talking about. So it's a very common sense pitch to say we have 120 million Americans, we spent 1.2 trillion dollars on them, and if we could get them just the same kind of health outcomes that Cindy and I and you enjoy uh, by dealing with them as a whole person, as Cindy said, we will make enormous amount of progress, and if we don't, we can do everything else. We can count our steps. We can count my steps till the cows come home. It won't matter.
0: It's a very passionate pitch. Uh, questions down here. If a microphone could go, Henry Waxman in the second row.
2: Thank you very much. Excellent panel. Did a great job. Uh, I think most people would say think cut Social Security. It's a political. A danger path. If they cut Medicare, Medicare is sacrosanct as well. Yet Speaker Paul Ryan wanted to cut Medicare and the budget that the House has adopted is calling for deep cuts in Medicare. The question raised earlier is, is Medicaid in that same situation? And I thought that when President Clinton said, you don't touch Medicare or Medicaid, he brought home the point that for seniors if they need nursing home or long-term care, it's Medicaid that will pay for it, and all the new people in Medicaid. So are these programs also untouchable? It wasn't Medicaid a reason why the repeal of the ACA couldn't go through. Is
0: Medicaid the new third rail?
3: So first of all, Congressman, thank you for the question, and more importantly, for your years of service in in creating, among many other things, the Medicaid program that we have uh, today. You know, I think what happened over the last couple of years is we observed Americans getting educated about what the Medicaid program did, that half the births in the country were paid for by Medicaid, that half of our long-term care was paid for by Medicaid, that 40% of the resources of the program, 40%, go to care for people who are living with disabilities that are middle class and would otherwise not be middle class. And so when I would ask people, do you know anybody on Medicaid? And they would say no, and I would ask them a couple more questions and say, wait a minute, I do, I know a lot of people on Medicaid. That happened across the country. And so I think that touching the Medicaid program became not, I'd say, exactly synonymous with touching the Medicare program, but close. And I will tell you that the, if you look at the polling, it is only a couple percentage points away from Medicare in terms of its now, its popularity in the country. My my colleague
0: Rachana Pradhan at Politico, if any of you just Google her name, Google Medicaid, she wrote a great story on all of these issues. And Cindy, do you agree with what Andy just said?
1: I think there's a a complexity to it that Medicare doesn't face. And that is that Medicaid, because it is a state-federal partnership, the states – it's one of the reasons why you see the states so – So frequently, you know, so many of us saying, please give us the flexibility not to get rid of the program, but be able to make the program affordable within our state and fix our state. That fix it so it fits our state. I mean, that's what that is coming from, because states, I know states, we say it all the time, but it's so true. We all sit there. We have a very fixed budget. There is only so much we can do. Uh, It literally becomes Medicaid or roads, Medicaid or, you know, all these choices. And those choices get harder and harder. So I do think, and, you know, it is one of the things I applaud the Trump administration for, is they are trying to figure out how to give us more flexibility. Not so that we can get rid of Medicaid, but so that we can make it actually sustainable for our state. That's what we talk about in Arkansas. How do we make it sustainable? For Arkansas not how do we get rid of it
0: and podcast listeners tomorrow when this podcast post can rewind to hear their views on medicaid and how to make it flexible or not um i'm going to use my my role as moderator for the last question maybe we can stick around after too but something that didn't come up at all uh atul gawande was tapped this week to run the jeff bezos warren buffett jamie diamond health venture reinventing healthcare. andy you have been publicly effusive about the tool selection but but be honest did, did you want, even just a little bit, did you want that job? <laughs>
3: no, I didn't, and, this is a, and this, I didn't want it for very personal reasons, which I, which I made, tried to make very public over and over again, which is, and look, I do think a tool uh, is the, there's no better person on the planet to take the job, for reasons I'm happy to answer if you want to ask me that question. But for me personally, my passion is with underserved and vulnerable populations. And that's where, I'm, that's where I'm fully committed myself to, because I think it's a problem that if we don't solve, our country doesn't heal. We're, we're all fine. The people in this room who made it to Aspen, we're going to get good health care. We can self-advocate. Our system's not going to go bankrupt because of us. It's not the 67-year-old jogger. It's the, it's the woman who has to take two buses to get to the dialysis center, misses work, misses her bus, goes into renal failure. That's the problem that we need to solve. And I'm passionate about that problem. And that's not really... The problem that, as, as for as great as things as they can do, and I hope they do, that, that these three disruptors uh, have at the top of their list. So that's that's why I wasn't interested.
0: Do you, do you feel like you and Atul together are going to fix U.S. healthcare?
3: I I would do anything Atul asks me to. If he needs help, uh, I would. And I would encourage anybody who don't doesn't know Atul, if you have any opportunity to lend him a hand on, on anything he's oh, doing. He'll be at Spotlight show. Health in a
0: few days. I want to say thank you again to Andy and Cindy and thank you to the crowd. You've been great. That's it for this episode of Pulse Check. My thanks to the Aspen Institute, Zach, Natalie, and others for helping this conversation happen and Cindy and Andy for joining me at Belly Up Aspen to hash it out for an hour. And on my end, Michaela Rodriguez and Dave Shaw for producing the show from Politico. You can find me at ddiamond@politico.com. At You can find a new episode of Pulse Check in your podcast player
2: next week.